0: Welcome to the Trilogy of Terror Podcast.
1: Hello, and Happy New Year! Gore Blimey here, recovering from Christmas. Let's just say crackers were pulled and chestnuts were roasted. So, how have you been? Feels like ages. Hope you had a good Christmas and got everything you wanted. Sadly, I didn't, which meant either I'm on Santa's naughty list or Ryan Reynolds was too busy, but never mind. I've almost eaten myself into a quality street coma, so not all bad. Oh, and apologies if I sound a bit bunged up. I'm still suffering a cough and cold, which is why my computer desk is covered in sticky tissues. People often say voices sound sexier when they're dry and hoarse. I don't know if that's always true, but it did encourage me to hurry up and get recording, just in case. I know what you're going to say. There's been a long gap between this episode and the last one. Well, something I've learnt this year is a horror podcast needs three things to be successful. Lots of free time, lots of enthusiasm, and at least one person with a Scottish accent. I might get away with two of those things, but it doesn't work with just one. I've had a lot of unexpected stuff to deal with lately, but hey, I'm back now. I'm bending my own rules slightly this time, the excuse being it's a bonus episode for New Year. Rather than looking at three films by one director, I'm going to be looking at three films that make up a trilogy. Sort of. So ones with different directors. And unfortunately, there won't be any feedback this time because well, I didn't give anyone warning I was doing this. That will all come back in the next proper episode, and I really am grateful to those people who sent their comments in for the Steve Miner movies. I will still be using them, don't worry. And, of course, if you have any feedback or comments about the movies I'm discussing here, I'd also love to hear from you, and I'll try and include them next time too. You can tweet me on Twitter at IamGoreBlimey, or email me at TrilogyPodcast at gmail.com. Onto this three-part thriller, the confusingly named Zombie Flesh Eaters 1, 2 & 3, also known as Zombie 2, 3 & 4, or Zombie, Zombie 3 & After Death. As with other successful European horror films, you get a string of unofficial sequels which usually have very little to do with the first one, and have just taken the name and added a number to it. Think of the Demons franchise as another example. Sometimes, Killing Birds Raptors is labelled as Zombie 5, which could be taken as a fourth instalment, but it has even less to do with the other films than they do with each other already, so I've left that one out. There are loads of others that have had Zombie 3 or 4 or whatever slapped on at some time, including Nightmare City, Zombie Holocaust, The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, Paul Nash's The Hanging Woman, Jess Franco's A Virgin Among the Living Dead and Revenge in the House of Usher, and Joe D'Amato's Anthropophagus and Absurd, so hopefully you can see why I focused on the first three, which the zombie fleshy to title seems to have stuck with the most. Anyway. A slightly different episode this time, though hopefully not too much. Maybe a bit shorter or truncated, but it's cold weather, what do you expect? And like last time, I'm including a few promos for other podcasts I listen to, which I really recommend you check out if you get the chance. The Trilogy of Terror Podcast.
2: My father always said, when the earth spit out the dead, they will come back to suck the blood from the living. That would
1: walk. First up, the original zombie flesh eaters. Before the opening titles roll, we see a body on a bed bound and wrapped up in a sheet. It slowly sits upright, then is shot quite graphically in the head. It's grisly and disturbing and downbeat, and it pretty much sets the tone for the next 90 minutes. In 1978, George A. Romero had a huge hit with Dawn of the Dead, which was released in Italy as Zombie. Meanwhile, the script for Lucio Fulci's movie about Walking Dead had already been written under the name Nightmare Island. Apart from the cannibalistic undead, it didn't have much in common with Romero's creation and focused more on traditional voodoo-style zombies from films like I Walked With a Zombie and Voodoo Island but the success of Dawn of the Dead, or Zombie, was too good not to cash in on, so Nightmare Island became Zombie 2, and the scenes set in America were also added. Soon after, in the UK, the film was released as Zombie Flesh Eaters, with one of my all-time favourite movie posters. And it wasn't long before it ended up on the video nasties list, as one of the 39 prosecuted films, which means in a video rental store, someone supplying the video to a customer could have ended up in prison. Anyway, back to the movie itself, we see an eerie abandoned boat drifting silently past various famous New York landmarks. It attracts the attention of the authorities who go to investigate and board it.
0: Ahoy there! This is the Harbour Patrol!
1: Well, for a start, I'm not sure that you are. By the uniforms, I'd say traffic cops. And do people really say ahoy there outside of pirate adventures? But that's by the by. It's a good opening sequence. It's creepy and atmospheric, with the lack of music, the rotten food, the sound of flies buzzing, and we get our first really effective gore effects. I do like how these New York scenes bookend the story, and they give a memorable closing image too. I know they were added as an afterthought, but they actually fit really well with the rest of the movie. We're introduced to our plucky heroine, Anne Bowles, not to be confused with Sally Bowles. That would have made for a very different experience. She's looking for her father. He owned the abandoned yacht where one of the Coast Guards was found dead and whose body is currently being examined.
0: Have you... have you already examined him? Yeah, I made one or two notes.
1: In my opinion, the death of the poor bastard was caused by massive hemorrhage due to a
2: huge laceration of the juggler.
1: Hang on a minute. There was a juggler involved. Anyway, she joins forces with a journalist called Peter and they decide they need to get a lift on a boat to the mysterious island where all the zombies happen to live. Or don't live, you know what I mean. It's a place so exotic, just thinking about it brings on comedy tropical music full of maracas and Casio keyboards. As luck would have it, they immediately find a man with a yacht and a woman with a perm. There's a brief conversation full of awkward dramatic pauses, but sadly no one picks up on the innuendo gold that is the island name of Matul. How would you like to see Matul? While you're exploring the islands, do you think you could fit in Matul? Pretty soon, the perm woman decides to do a bit of scuba diving in the shark infested waters and dresses up in a tiny piece of string and pretty much nothing else. She is promptly attacked by an underwater zombie who she cleverly fights off with a handful of seaweed and then we get the famous scene of a zombie fighting a shark. No CGI or mechanical models here, that really is a person wrestling an actual shark. Kudos man, even Jaws never went this far and everyone loved that. Meanwhile, back on the tropical island of Matul, we have the very dashing Doctor, played by Richard Johnson from my favourite horror film, The Haunting. He's trying to find a cure for, and keep on top of, all the undead who keep popping up out the ground like a voodoo version of whack His wife isn't all that happy, though I can't really blame her. Not only does she have to take showers surrounded by full-length mirrors, in case we miss anything, but she also provides the film's other iconic moment, the infamous eye-poking scene. Filmed with great confidence, very slowly and in close-up, and it's still a shocking moment that makes you squirm. Though, maybe less of a shock if you've seen other films by Lucio Fulci. I mean, you know there'd be an eye gouging somewhere. The build-up to this is really tense and suspenseful, and it showcases some of the movie's strengths, relying on eerie sounds rather than dramatic music, clever use of shadows and lighting, and impressive gore effects that still stand up today. It also reminds you how good the production design is – there's a lot of great camera work throughout, combined with some excellent sets and scenery. The only thing that lets it down slightly there is the editing, which is a bit abrupt and slightly jarring sometimes, but I don't know if that's just the version I watched. The eyeball scene marks the halfway point of the film, and the zombie action really starts to build up from here on, so I won't spoil any of that, as that's the meat and potatoes of the movie for most people. It's not a perfect film, it's creepy and disturbing rather than frightening, and the sequence leading up to the eye-gouging is the only one that really builds tension well. The zombies, which are also highly flammable for some reason, are in a pretty well-preserved state considering some of them are 400 years old, though to be fair I really do like the look of them, as if they've been dug up, all dusty and caked in dirt and worms. And the way they move, with their heads down and arms hanging limply, sets them apart from Dawn of the Dead and its clones. The acting's decent, though some victims do still have that tendency to stand still and wait for the zombies to take bites out of them, but hey, I can overlook that. If the version you see is the full uncut one, the gore is really impressive. Which shouldn't be a surprise, as the makeup effects were the work of Gennetto De Rossi, who also worked on The Beyond, The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, and The House by the Cemetery, and many others. Because of the realism of the makeup effects, I can see why it made it onto the Video Nasties list, though it is a much better film than most of the others on it. It's much better made for a start, and it doesn't mutilate any animals for a cheap and easy shock. I do think this is one of those films where you look back and remember it being a lot more action-packed than it actually is, but that's fine. I can forgive it its faults, even if it sounds like I'm poking fun at them sometimes, honestly I do it with great affection. They're part of the experience. Zombie Flesh Eaters is an entertaining, shocking and fun horror movie to watch, and that's all good in my books. It's still one of my favourites in the zombie subgenre. I would say to you, go and watch it, but let's be honest, if you're a full-on horror fan, you've probably got your own copy already.
0: You know what has caused all this? Is it voodoo?
2: Lucas not 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 a man. The father of my father always say, when the earth spit out the dead, they will come back to suck the blood from the living. That's nonsense. That's just a stupid superstition. Yes, you are right, Doctor. You know many more things than Lucas. I don't
0: believe that voodoo
2: can bring the dead back to life. And Lucas not believe that the dead be dead.
1: This is Blue Heart. We're interrupting our music program to make an important announcement to all our listeners. Something serious is happening in this part of the world, something extremely unpleasant. We've been getting a constant stream of phone calls. There is a wave of incredible violence sweeping the country. Murders,
0: rape, whole families wiped out in their homes. Men, women, and children
1: of all ages are sharing the same fate. The dead are rising up again, murdering their old friends and relatives, but then they eat the bodies. The military authorities assure us that the situation is under control. And now to the second part of our gut-munching trilogy, Zombie Flesh Eaters 2. The film opens with a film by Lucio Fulci all over the screen, though apparently only about 50 minutes of the finished film were directed by him. Because of ill health, he was replaced partway through by Bruno Mattei and Claudio Fragasso, who between them have worked on such classics as Hell of the Living Dead, Rats Night of Terror, Scalps, Monster Dog, Cruel Jaws and Troll 2. So, what could possibly go wrong? It all starts off with a top secret chemical called, rather dramatically, Death One. So, you might have guessed that it's something incredibly dangerous if it gets into the wrong hands.
0: One thing is for sure. The Death One compound is far more dangerous than any of us ever imagined. The military consider it an extremely powerful bacteriological weapon.
1: Don't worry, I don't think anyone noticed the line fluff there. So, when we see a couple of scientists in their lab coats walking the sample out to the helicopter, it's not surprising that they're surrounded by armed guards. What is surprising though, is that a big yellow van screeches up a few yards from them and none of them notice. Catching them totally unawares like this, the trained soldiers with guns are somehow overpowered. A man from the van runs off with a chemical while a helicopter tries to spot him as he crosses a wide open grassy area. One of those times when being fired at by a chopper isn't a good thing I guess. Fortunately for him the airborne soldiers have the worst target skills ever. They manage to hit the chemical which leaks into an injury in his hand and he escapes to a nearby hotel complex. Obviously bad things don't stop when he gets to the hotel. There's the extras and they're acting for a start.
2: Water for the guest in room four. Oh no. Again? What's he trying to do? Get into the Guinness Book of Records?
1: As this is a horror movie, we know far worse things are in store, as one of the characters helpfully hints at us.
0: A contaminated man of course can infect other persons. Through breath, saliva, blood, and any other kind of body-to-body transmission.
1: I have a sneaking suspicion this film won't be exploring the other kind of body-to-body transmission route, but I think we all know where this is going. After the kind of manicure you only give yourself when you're half crazed with an infected hand and a massive great knife in your hotel room, the man is eventually picked up by some figures in white hazmat suits and his body is promptly incinerated.
0: Oh Doctor, it's you. Who told you to burn the body of the man infected with Death One? I had to close an episode.
2: The episode could open again. Hadn't it ever occurred to you that the ashes assimilated into the air could fall back to Earth again?
1: Well, of course, if you'd seen Return of the Living Dead, you'd already know that. And look, there's the smoke rising into the sky, which is filled with birds. At this point, we're introduced to more of the other characters. In a red open-top car, we have a young woman and a very moany and incredibly annoying boyfriend.
2: I like smoking. I take a toke on a joint every now and then, and once in a while I like to piss on a bush. Am I going to go to hell for that?
1: Well, before we get a chance to hear whether she'd even let him near a bush, let alone... um, They come across loads of little feathery bodies in the road, and when they investigate, misery water sports bloke is attacked by a hilarious flapping bird puppet. The couple drive off to an abandoned gas station, where the woman is chased around by a fast-moving and very pissed-off zombie waving a machete. Yeah, it all sounds very silly, but the build-up to this scene is actually pretty tense. The cobwebby, dilapidated set design looks great too, along with the use of green lighting and a smoke machine. It's one of the best scenes and ends with a fairly impressive bang too. We also meet a group of attractive women on a bus and three horny soldiers in a jeep. They all come together when the bus is attacked by a plague of zombie birds. Ones with serious attitude. Imagine Hitchcock's The Birds, but funnier. They decide to head for safety at a nearby hotel. Now. I was slightly confused by this. If this is the same hotel as before, it seems to have become badly derelict and overgrown in the space of an afternoon. So I'll give it the benefit of the doubt and assume it's a completely different one. Anyway, despite its falling down state, it's surprising what useful things you can find when your Boy Scout instincts come into action. Come on, come on. I found a crate full of guns downstairs. Come on. One of the strangest things in all this is the zombies themselves, who are bizarrely inconsistent. We get the slow-moving type with their arms outstretched, but then we get fast-moving ones. Zombies that run, that fight using martial arts or weapons, a couple that speak, and some that can think for themselves and set traps. It's a bit of a random mix, with the undead drastically changing to suit whatever the scene needs. On top of that, we get incredibly patient zombies who stand waiting in ambush on top of big tall posts, or hiding in tiny wall cupboards, just in case someone happens to walk past at some time, one day, I guess. Now I'll try not to spoil things too much with the rest of the plot, but I do have some favourite scenes I can't help talking about. Here's a summary. The soldiers think of ways to keep themselves alert while on night duty. You relieve me in a couple of hours, okay? Okay. Um, okay, maybe just humour me on that one. One person is pulled from a pool to find their legs have been eaten off, presumably by zombie fish. The chief scientist gets so enraged by the army general, he starts to channel William Shatner.
0: Of course, we are already working on studying an antidote for what, in my belief, is a virus. We're looking for an element which will enable us to stop this virus from reproducing.
1: A random woman we've never seen before gives birth to a zombie baby with adult-sized hands. And in my absolute favorite scene a couple go looking for food in the hotel's kitchen.
2: There doesn't seem to be anything here. I bet that fridge is empty too huh?
1: Not at all. It contains a flying zombie head. I kid you not, a decapitated head that levitates out and bites someone. The film has plenty of eerie moments. There's some good atmosphere at times. I really like the locations, especially the derelict places, which had a real sense of decay and despair. The faceless decontamination squad adds an extra layer of threat in addition to the cannibalistic undead. The pace is good overall, with plenty of action, though it's more silliness than scares, and I admit it did keep me entertained throughout. The use of coloured lighting and smoke machines is pretty effective at first and gives the film a comic book feel, but it does get overused and starts to wear a bit thin. The zombie makeup's not bad, but it's not particularly memorable either. The gore effects are decent though, and I quite like the music. It's very synthy, very 80s, and very Italian horror. Reminds me a bit of the Demons theme, though not quite as catchy. And it does borrow from other horror movies, such as Return of the Living Dead, The Fog, and Night of the Living Dead, especially towards the end. But I don't have a problem with that. I read somewhere that this was originally going to be a 3D film. I don't think it was ever released as one, but there are certainly a few bits where big knives or other long objects are thrust out at the camera in a very obvious way. Not entirely sure things jumping out the screen would have made this a better film, but I just found that interesting. Anyway, Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 is a very different movie to its supposed predecessor, even despite the Lucio-Fulci connection. I do enjoy it, I must admit, but more as a fun thing to watch with a few drinks. Just pop it in and grab a stiff one and that's what I call a good night. It's certainly not a good movie, but it entertains me with its ridiculous set pieces and it's never boring. I know not everyone would agree, but I'd put this up there with Zombie Lake and Hell of the Living Dead as one of my favourite unintentionally fun zombie movies. do you think you're the only one they want?
2: I know, because I've been on this island before 20 years ago. And your folks must have taken part in those experiments. But why didn't you say something then, when I was telling everyone about it? I forgot.
0: I'm just beginning to
1: Our final foray into Flesh Eaters is number three, also known as Zombie 4 and After Death. This time, they managed to get an actor with some sort of cult status. Jeff Stryker, here credited by his real name, Charles or Chuck Payton, is probably better known for his roles in video classics like Power Tool, Bigger Than Life, Every Which Way and Santa's Coming. Yep, in the 80s and 90s, Jeff Stryker was huge in gay porn in every sense, so part of the novelty of this is watching him perform with his clothes on. At the time of Zombie Flesh Eaters 3 he would have been at his peak in the adult movie industry. This was possibly his attempt to make it in serious acting and surprisingly for someone who's appeared in films with many a one-eyed monster, this is the one that popped his horror movie cherry. The story itself kicks off with a man in black robes in a cave full of candles, green lighting and a smoke machine. There's a woman dancing around in a way that gives me flashbacks to pan's people on top of the pops. People with guns come in, who are apparently scientists trying to cure cancer. They had annoyed the man in the robes and his disco-dancing wife by not saving their child. There's something about a voodoo curse, the wife turns into a demon-like zombie and attacks them, they run off, it's over-the-top, loud, gruesome, a bit campy, in fact, a really good start to the movie. It got my attention, anyway. There are scenes of a very young blonde girl running through the woods with her parents, fleeing the undead, and if they weren't suffering enough, they get some terrible dialogue to say.
2: Listen to me, sweetheart. Now you have to run very fast, you understand? Fast as you can without stopping. And if you're obedient, Mother will join you later.
1: At which point, the Mother puts an ugly pendant around the girl's neck, about the size of a small brick, and the little child runs off through the forest, smiling and appearing to have a good time. We're also introduced to a group of people in a speedboat, with pretty young women and slightly creepy men who look old enough to be their fathers. It's a bit confusing at first, because one of the women is blonde, wears a heavy clunky thing around her neck, and appears to have been here before.
2: No, it's weird. Something strange about it. As if it were haunted. The sort of thing I used to dream about. There was an island like this one, full of zombies. The living dead. They were horrible.
0: I wouldn't be concerned. We're headed for the harbour.
2: I still hate it. But maybe it's fate. Anyway, with this I feel safe. What is that? It's a key, to keep the door to hell closed.
0: (laughs) The door to hell?
2: That's right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right, so I assume this is a flash forward. It would make sense, but because both lots of scenes look as though they're happening in the same time frame, it's not easy to tell. The final group we meet include Jeff Stryker, with his wide-apart shirt, glistening chest and a completely different voice to his trademark deep gravelly one. Now the undead should be pretty scared of him. After all, he's got a concealed weapon that would make a zombie's eyes bulge out. He's here with two other people and they're busy moaning about the jungle. It's like being locked in a steam bath. No, not really, but maybe he's just getting this confused with one of his other films. They don't escape the bad dialogue either. For example, when they go into a creepy cave tunnel and start spouting the obvious. There's some torches here,
2: David. Shall we use them?
1: Sure. And these are the guys who are supposed to defeat the monsters? Before long, the boat group finds an abandoned hospital building, so we have creepy derelict buildings in the jungle, like in the previous film, plus an unconvincingly great big crate of weapons that's left lying around, like in the previous one also. But this time, there are loads of lit candles, which is a bit new. What's
0: all this stuff? The
2: circle of Satan. It's the door of hell. A Voodoo ritual. It prevents the dead from rising. You have to... You have to put the amulet in the centre. Like this. Bullshit! That's all it is. Well,
1: you're probably right, but let's just stick with it for now. After the pick and mix selection of different zombie types all over Flesh Eaters 2, you're probably wondering where on earth could they go with this next instalment? Ninja zombies. Dressed in black, running around and constantly jumping out at people as if they're on springboards. Oh, unless they're characters who've become undead, in which case they're talking zombies who can use guns and taunt their former friends. Back to the plot, in a different place, with more lit candles and cobwebs, Jeff, I mean mean Chuck, who is his character name, but also his real name, but not his usual actor name, and his chums make an important discovery that doesn't sound at all like it's been stolen from a different film. The Book of the Dead.
2: No, you mustn't open it. Why not? Because it could be dangerous. Don't be silly. What's wrong with you two? The diary said it started in a grotto with voodoo magic.
0: You're being childish,
1: Valerie. I bet this was written by a fanatic who belonged to some religious sect.
2: Hey, how can you talk like that? You haven't seen enough?
1: Come on, Chuck. Why don't you try reading some of it?
2: Don't do it. It might release evil forces.
1: So the cocky bloke, who isn't Chuck, does exactly what you'd expect, and reads the words out loud. Now, what could possibly go wrong? Anatanum. Zombie. Maraton, Zombie.
0: You see, you really believe in zombies in this day and age. Nothing happened. Watch out for the werewolf.
1: <laughs> I won't describe the plot anymore because I don't want to spoil it for you. While it's not going to be in many top 10 horror movie lists, there are quite a few things I like about it. It's got a punchy beginning with lots of action and some decent gore. The special makeup effects overall are good. It's just a shame the best stuff mostly happens at the beginning and towards the end. And yes, you do still get that strange thing when people just scream and do nothing else while someone pulls their eye out or whatever. There's a rockin' 80s score in this too. I know it gets very Eye of the Tiger at times, but I must admit, I'm down with it. The performances seem to be adequate, though it's distractingly hard to tell, because although everyone's speaking in English, it appears they've been overdubbed by other actors. In the lead role, Jeff Stryker actually does a decent job, and this is a man you'd think would be famous for his stiff performances. I could go as far as saying he had a memorable big part, but that would be a cheap innuendo, and we don't do those. The film's another one that borrows from other well-known movies. There's a jump scare when a woman is standing with her back against a wall and suddenly lots of hands burst through it, like in Day of the Dead. A main character dies, then is later seen opening his eyes and sitting quietly up as a zombie, like in Dawn of the Dead, and we see the buried undead emerging from the ground, just like in the original zombie Flesh Eaters, except in this case they're not so much buried as sprinkled with a layer of twigs and dirt. One of the real weaknesses is the script there are some awkward bits of dialogue that make it almost feel like a comedy.
2: He's turned into one of those monsters. Look out! Ah!
1: Tommy, what's happened to you?
2: He isn't human anymore. He's one of them. Same as the others.
0: Right. Aim for the head. No! Screw you. I ain't gonna shoot Tommy, he's one of us.
2: He's a real pain. Yeah. He can't live anymore.
1: Oh, here's a slightly different example.
2: Aren't you frightened? Ah,
1: Sure,
0: it's only natural to feel frightened. It's fear that saves your life when you're fighting. Waiting for Charlie to drop out of the trees at night. Those are the times that really count for something in a man's life. When you discover if you've got balls or not.
1: Well, in Chuck's case, some of us have probably already discovered... While it all starts off well, and I really enjoyed the first hour, the film kind of runs out of steam around that point. It feels like it's winding down and should be finishing soon. The music gets repeated far too often, the pace slows right down, the action feels repetitive and the fight sequences get a bit samey. I did find I started to lose interest. Zombie Flesh Eaters 3 has a fairly short running time, only 1 hour 20 minutes. Apparently there is a version that has an additional 8 minutes. But... Nah, you're all right. I sort of liked it, but this was quite enough. The Trilogy
0: of Terror podcast, where we try three times harder to give you the willies.
2: Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host, Duncan McLeish, and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror where our horror novice the Baz tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on stitcher and itunes the podcast under the stairs is a proud member of legion podcast network this is duncan mcleish from under the stairs signing off
0: hi i'm joe parker and i'd like to invite you to check out my show the hybrid moments podcast i'm just an average guy with a slew of interests and the podcast is an extension of that the theme of the show varies episode by episode, but some of the topics I cover include horror, music, comics, just about anything but politics. So if you like a little variety in your life, come on by and check out the show. You can find me on iTunes or Stitcher, or check out the website, thehybridmomentspodcast.com. You can also join the group on Facebook at The Hybrid Moments Podcast in the group section. Feel free to mingle, leave feedback, or suggestions for future shows. That's The Hybrid Moments Podcast with Joe Parker. Tune in to see what I cover next. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Oh, uh, necrophilia. Uh, uh, uh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, Prudes. I know, really. Right?
1: Well, that's all for this episode, but before I go, I really would like to thank people who've sent me feedback, who've been in touch on Twitter, and who've written reviews on iTunes. You guys are absolutely brilliant. Thanks also to Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com for the music, the show must be go, and to Gentleman's Grindhouse Records for giving this show a home. And lastly, but most importantly, thank you for listening. Without you, there'd be no reason for me to do this and I'd have to start talking to the bathroom mirror again. In the next full episode, I'll be back on track, and finally doing the Steve Miner trilogy. I'll be talking about Friday the 13th Part 3, House, and Lake Placid. I've already had feedback from some lovely folk, but if you want to add yours, you've still got time to send it in as an email, or as an audio file, to trilogypodcast at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with me on Twitter at IamGoreBlimey. In the meantime... Keep an eye out for a mini-episode. Till then, bye! Don't forget to visit
0: and like the Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter at IamGoreBlimey or email us at TrilogyPodcast at gmail.com